0: Pump this, pump this, pump this, pump this. So you should pump this shit like
1: they do in the future. So you should pump this shit like they do in the future. So you should pump this shit like they do in the future. So you should pump this, pump this, pump this. So you should pump this shit like they do in the future. So you should pump this shit like they do in the future. So you should pump this shit like they do in the future. So you. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan and Neith.
0: Hi, Dan. You all right? Happy New Year. It's a new year.
1: And a happy new year to you, young man. Thank you. Did you have a good <laughs> Thank one? Thank you, kind sir.
0: Um, it, it was okay. I just enjoyed the time of work. I did um, end up, because uh, PlayStation had quite a good sale on uh, <laughs> video games, so I bought this game called This War of Mine, and in it you play as a civilian, just, you know, no army mm. training so it's kind of like The Sims, but really depressing. So you have to not only like make sure everyone has to eat, you have to stop people going like really depressed and killing wait, wait, themselves.
1: Wait, is there a wider context? Or is this just a guy in regular day-to-day life?
0: Um, yeah, so you control, like, you can uh, go between three or four different characters. Each of like, special skills that have limited... But what's happened to the society? Oh, it's just in a civil war. Oh, right. Yeah, so he it's based It's based on... <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, sorry so it's based on like. the developers they experienced the war in Sarajevo but you know yeah and so you know like throughout it you're just it's you in the day trying to build stuff to stay warm and then you go out and you like go into different zones so you can either rob people who are just like caught up like you yeah. or I'm one of them I murdered a soldier with a, a spade which was quite good that's cool but as well uh, as you try and survive you're um, and you like, you're forced to kind of commit these acts you're, you're forced to yeah pretty much because otherwise you don't eat or yeah. you, you like you die of like you know being ill um so like
1: uh you, sounds you c- of it like capitalism in general
0: Yeah, that's the next game they're doing just yeah it's yeah just, it's just it's, just it's just not U- even it's escapism just, just 2018. yeah yeah pretty much but so like your characters get more and more depressed so like on one of them because uh, you it goes through days until like randomly the war ends but mm. i haven't done that yet because i find it too hard but i like one of them i got home and then it was just like um anton is frozen to death and i was like <laughs> <laughs> all right and then so like cuz it's just you going out all the time like everyone else is like depressed just,
1: there was um what was that game on the pc it was like called uh Oregon Trail or
0: something uh, oh, like that that's the old one is it you uh, died of dysentery you died of cholera yeah, yeah. there are no roads <laughs> So, like, one of these, I came back, and it's like, Anton's frozen to death because winter's come, and, like, I didn't have any ah. enough fuel to... And then, like, the guy was just broken and sobbing on the floor, and then and that was it. Then he just died, like... Wow, game development
1: is uh, taking a postmodern turn. Yeah, it has. I, mean, I just yeah, prefer first-person shoot 'em ups,
0: man. Well, I mean, that's, like, the an- antithesis of FPS is, like, oh, this is actually what happens in war when you're civilian. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, you may have been, like, a high-flying lawyer before it all broke out, but now those skills mean absolutely nothing. Yeah as you're scavenging for like supplies to build a makeshift kind of uh
1: rat trap for meat. Oh, i does not even bear thinking about it would be absolutely useless any sort of <laughs> no nah. right skill survival skills writing essays yeah podcasting much. oh we could do like um we could be like resistance lord, lord, radio or the alternative oh yeah that's one that's a better idea though i was gonna <laughs> say which is like lord hoho you know being the guy that does the broadcast for you know Nazi Jew, <laughs> yeah. the British person that used to do so like a shipping like, broadcast of like, and these
0: areas have been bombed, Trafalgar One.
1: <laughs> but that guy, like, uh, was it Joyce or whatever the Irish dude that did all the broadcasts for Hitler? James Joyce. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the guy that did all the broadcasts for Hitler. um Like, he got hanged. There was a program on Radio Four after like um after the war finished. Like, he got hanged. But then they, there was another dude from Scotland who'd been doing basically the same thing. um and were they, they just,
0: were they in Germany doing the broadcasts? Yeah, oh, yeah, right, they yeah. The broad, yeah, they were in Germany
1: doing the Yeah, they were in Germany doing the broadcast, like basically like pro Nazi propaganda, but in received pronunciation, sending it to like you know the British listeners, the soldiers, things like that. Yeah. But this is a Scottish guy who did it, and I can't remember his name, but he basically got off. The, the judge was like, "Yeah, six months in jail, and then he's free to go." And he moved back to his like own village, and they went mental and started like smashing the, the ho- his house up where he lived and things. But apparently, it's because obviously. We think about evidence and stuff nowadays, they didn't have any recordings of him. No. Oh, right. So it's just like circumstantial. Yeah, it was like, but everyone knew he did it and they, and they yeah. found transcripts later on, but you know, he died by then. So, so okay, so new here, a new positive Wales, Nathan. What's been happening?
0: Um, well, a lot's been happening. Um, or has there? I don't know. It's just, it's, it's almost like the kind of the same grey tide of news, isn't it? Tell so, them. um, one thing i did see on wales online uh save one Wom- uh womanby street campaigners now want to protect live music in other cities so it shows that labor mp joe stevens eddie Azad, mm-hmm. who um who loves labor and kevin brennan yeah they're all come down to say like kind of they came down to express their concerns about womanby street closing this independent music venue that um was last year a local labor council the labor council of cardiff
1: were planning to shut it down. Oh yeah, by the way, Kevin Brennan is a member of the parliamentary rock band MP4.
0: Not MP5. That's oh, a bit yeah, too so, cool.
1: So that's the one. So basically, Kevin Brennan and uh, Joe Stevens and things have now claimed that they've, you know, the Save Be Street campaign led by Labour has basically now going to be adopted by England. So he says, Scottish Government, the London Mayor and now the UK Government are all considering follow the Welsh Government's pledge to adopt the Agent of Change principle into planning law. I don't know. I mean, all this stuff is just so shameless. Like, I mean, it was a Labour council that wanted to shut down the independent venues in Woomby Street. This Labour council in Cardiff that have shut down and in Newport that have got rid of all the in good independent venues and just turned Cardiff into this bland, homogenous... Hellhole full of chain yeah, restaurants, it's a generic cityscape, um, isn't it? And then there's an independent grassroots campaign, Save Wombey Street, which got immediately co-opted by Brennan and Joe Stevens because they're like, "Oh, this is a campaign to get onto." So once again, you have Joe Stevens and Kevin Brennan, who are in Labour campaigning against Cardiff Council, which is also Labour. So it shows like that. Well, I don't know. It's a whole grubby episode, but it's just a fact that now it's like this is how we do things in Wales. We're really progressive, and now England's copying us. But they're taking credit for something and nothing would have happened if it wasn't for grassroots protest. I don't know. That's disgusting. It's kind of grim, isn't it? Um, the other story that has been, or big twit story or whatever, has been that... Yeah, the, <laughs> it's the pretty funny actually. ironic thing that... Neith, yeah. So Neath Castle was flying the Union Jack. Like, they apparently had a Welsh flag Flying out in front, I didn't know Neath had a castle to be honest, and I've been to most of the ones in Wales. And, uh, and so, there, Dan was a, castle Evans. there was a Union Jack in front of it, and in, not the w- Welsh Dragon. So, there's a huge like, online campaign, um, and people were like apoplectic and you know kicking off about the Union Jack, which was good to see, like sort of anti British sentiment. That's always good. But who built the castle originally,
0: though? I mean, I is, this, is this the irony? I got an no idea.
1: Um, but so there's a huge campaign, like let's get the Welsh. Flag back and take the Union Jack down and whatever people dedicate a lot to too much time and effort talking about it on Twitter uh, and then it transpired that there'd been <laughs> there'd been like a fireworks display and like the Welsh flag had just been burnt and they hadn't <laughs> and they hadn't like uh, replaced it so they like, just let put the British one it. Um, what, what have we got in storage? Got a pirate flag, yeah, rainbow stick, flag. Stick oh, you. Yeah. Um, but it, it's interesting because it does hark back to that another grubby episode of recent Welsh history which illustrates a number of things within Welsh politics and that was the flag outrage in Glynneath I believe um, around that area back in maybe the early 2000s and this is when Owen Smith was who was a reporter for BBC Wales basically some royal had died or there was some royal occasion and Plaid Cymru at that time controlled a local council and they took the British flag down and flew the, the Welsh flag someone then I wonder who like started whipping up uh sort of outrage in the town. How dare they take the British flag down during this like sort of patriotic time or whatever, and they're flying the Welsh flag? Owen Smith then like went around doing vox pops in the area and just so happened to find, you know, like the three or four people who were militantly pro-British and were saying things like, "Oh, it's terrible flying a Welsh, you know, flying a Welsh flag. Should be bloody shaming themselves, traitors and all that." Both Owen Smith and his dad are militant. Militantly anti nationalist, like hardcore, hard, I mean, the hardest of hardcore, like British unionists in the old Labour sense. Uh, they've clearly got beef against the Welsh language. They despise Plaid Cymru. But I mean, there's loads of problems with nepotism. The fact that Owen Smith, you know, how do you, yeah, I think he got, he did his degree and then just randomly just joins the BBC as a producer and a reporter, yeah. like as you do, you know. No do you training. remember
0: on, um, the day to day, you kind of, um, Peter O'Harahan or something <laughs> like that? As the Minister for Ships sprawls on the pin, it's back to you, Chris. No, it isn't, Peter. He's about to answer the question. He's about to admit to lying to the house. You've let him get
1: away again.
0: Where's he gone? Over there. Well, get him back. He's in a cab. Peter, you've lost the news.
1: No normal person is going to be able to just waltz into, like, a producer, an editor, a job, whatever, at the BBC, like Owen Smith did. And it just so happened at the time that his dad, Dysmith, was the head of something at the BBC BBC Wales so anyway. So that's, does, that's a weird question. Yeah so, so Owen just, you know, swans into the media like that. Oh, that's his that's his getting. And then he's just like running this story which is quite cle- clearly like agenda driven, designed only to sort of smear plied Cymru. And it's doing that whole process there's no like, hey guys, isn't this like really biased? And then there was even a clip in the Welsh news and if you listen carefully, this is on YouTube, this this old bloke is in the town meeting but he's also yelling about this flag. And then the BBC crew, like, come in, and it starts playing. And he says something along the lines of, no, I haven't been put up to this, or I'm not political, this isn't (laughs) political. Um, I definitely haven't been paid. Yeah, but what it was quite clear is that, like, someone within the local Labour Party branch is like, right, we need to manufacture outrage now and do anything we can to turn the spotlight of you know you apply know, a terrible i'm not political yeah, yeah. but uh, not local polit-
0: councils yeah. shut off me yeah, yeah,
1: yeah basically so so it it got me thinking about that old um that old episode which i don't know if people don't know about it you should check it out on youtube because it was a pretty it was pretty crazy it's pretty crazy to think that you, you you can have like basically someone who you know like owen smith being in that position in the bbc but then again lee waters was like really high up in itv and He's always disliked Plyden. Anyway, so depressed already. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, that was the other thing. Um, Wales Online did, like, a Bevan Report thing, and what was it? It was, like, 18? um, I think it was six. I don't think it was as high as 18. Well, it was, like, was it, six challenges for Wales to overcome in the new year? Yeah. One's the cinnamon challenge. The epic challenges that Wales is predicted to face in 2018. I'm not going to go through this, but it's it's a funny way of saying it, like, epic challenges they turn like basically like the the, the yeah. crisis of capitalism and the impending like global civil war and uh cr- and they've turned and it crash. into like a kind a of a a th- nice a, funny list yeah listing, but, like, a,
0: a tough mud <laughs> event like haven't they
1: Ooh, are you prepared to uh, deal with the global recession where <laughs> automation is gonna lead everyone to lose their jobs and uh we're gonna start turning on each other and it'll be like uh i have like a, a, a,
0: austerity, austerity runs and things. um
1: so you can read that but the challenge is capitalism and the the impending, uh, we should set uh, a
0: desolation challenge that if
1: we can overthrow capitalism this year, finally, yeah, not the ice bucket challenge. No, no, did you oh, ever do the ice bucket challenge? I was actually going you know, I was working in a pub at the time, mm. <laughs> the same as now, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, and I wanted to do like a take like an empty bottle of like uh, Verve Clico or whatever it was, off or I don't know, and then a, an empty bottle of uh, I don't know, some of the Cristal and some of the expensive ones, and pretend that I was like. Living this like rapper's life, yeah. but I didn't do it because I
0: didn't like getting cold. I was going to try and start the um, ISIS challenge, which you kind of nominate people to behead. <laughs> Who that, would you
1: do? Oh, God, why wouldn't I do? That's my worst uh, worst fear. Being beheaded? Yeah. No, first being crushed to death by a rock yeah um, or you know like, so basically like not metaphorically no, it's basically death, like yeah. being in a house that gets bombed you know like it so collapses on oh, yeah. you second being burnt life <clears throat> no actually being burnt alive first yeah burnt life first crush second third shark yeah um, fourth or three and then fourth I, well the thing is be- being beheaded being beheaded right it depends if the person's doing it properly isn't it but honestly being beheaded once it once it hits a carotid artery you're going to bleed out pretty much like, yeah. straight away so in many ways I mean, ideally, I'd just like to be shot in the back of the head.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could die naturally as well. I mean, oh yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> as as, a, as an option. Yeah, yeah, but I just just a two two bum bum back of the head, like literally painless, like oh, being electrocuted the, is painless. My know, man, those guys look like they cook. Um, so
0: in this book called Tokyo Vice, it's about this um American journalist. Then he goes on the you know the vice, the vice department in his uh, local paper. So he's gone around with these police. So um, and he says in Japan the culture is that they um, are really obsessed with how to do things properly, like so on Amazon Japan like like most of the time the top selling books will be manuals on how to do things All right, but yeah. in the right way, and one of those <laughs> is the correct way to kill yourself, and in it like so he was saying like as a build up to this bit that he went into this room and he said like something smelled a bit weird but not like horrendous, but then there was this um, boy I think it was with his. On a bed, back at you know, facing the wall, back against the room—not back against the room, you know. So, and he goes to touch it, and so like the police officer's like Gaijin! because Gaijin means like you know Western or whatever. It's like can't you read? And on on the back it says like Listen, like well on the back was a note it said it didn't say Listen, it was like Warning. What's up? Yeah, hey, hey what's up? YouTube. Hey, <laughs> yeah, from the uh, oh my god, there's a guy. It was. <laughs> It was um, it was Paul Logan, uh, was it Logan Paul? I want to apologize to the internet. Um, just yeah. So anyway, um, said that he'd run a current through him, himself, but right. apparently it's a really painless way to go. I don't know, man. But if you are um, obviously very depressed, listening to this, like please donate all your money before
1: taking your life. Okay, we're delighted like to be joined today by Professor Kirsty Bhartar. Kirsty is a professor of English literature at Swansea University. And we're going to discuss today her brilliant book, uh, Post-Colonialism Revisited, Writing Wales in English. I think that's the right way around. So, welcome Kirsty. Thank you. Um, okay, so I guess let's get straight into it. Tell us about the book and, and why you decided to write it.
2: It came from a PhD and I decided on the topic because I could see that there were there were questions I had growing up in Wales that I wanted to be answered. And
0: You're the right person for them.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> I I proposed several ideas, actually, including kind of images of whales, and my um, supervisor told me quite tersely that's been done. Oh, there you go. So I proposed uh, post-colonial theory because I had briefly studied it as an undergraduate, but not enough. So probably I was ignorant enough to want to take it on. <laughs> um, but it really came from my need to um, work through my university experiences where I'd gone to university in Durham and realised how Welsh I was after a childhood of not really feeling Welsh, partly because I was told that uh, to go back where I came from. So there was this sort of, um, already lots of questions that I had about identity. And once you start reading any Welsh writing in English, and R.S. Thomas was a, an important writer for me at the beginning, very, very self-aware of the relationship between Wales and England and um, sort of a narrative sometimes of defeat, but also of pride and history. So all of these questions were um, just swilling around in a fairly incoherent way, but it seemed to me that the idea of um, looking at the power relationship between England and Wales um, was a place to start and that post-colonial theory was one model for doing that.
1: So you said about that you, in a way it was... To- it came from your own personal experiences and questions you needed answering. Um, were they all about identity? I mean, were they all about your own identity, or was it about what? I guess what were those questions? If you just the, I just, mean, what, what were the things you wanted to answer?
2: The personal questions were not ultimately what I pursued in the book. The personal questions were about growing up in a Welsh-speaking area um, as the child of immigrants who were well one english and one czech so the child of a refugee as well so there were sort of layers of 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 questions about what what gave you an identity what was belonging because and i was born in wales so when i was told about to go home there was no obvious place and i think having sometimes having the sort of an outsider perspective allows you to ask questions that are relevant and that's one of the things that post-colonialism does teach you the, the the idea of the hybrid or having a foot in, in two cultures and therefore being able to see both in, in a way that maybe you can't see from when you're entirely within them. So those were the sort of um, background questions, if you like, um, that I had. The only question that really makes it into the book that, that comes from my own childhood experiences is the one about afforestation. Mm. Um, because I happen to live next to a, a conifer plantation um, that my parents had seen transformed from an oak ash, you know a sort of a sloping woodland into conifer trees and they'd always said that was really mean the forestry commission coming around and killing off the oaks
1: there's there's questions of identity and unequal an relationship between wales and england why then is post-colonialism a post-colonial theory the ideal heuristic you to analyze these questions so here's a big one what <laughs> explain post-colonial theory me, <laughs> please
2: well it's about it's partly about language written language and different languages and um, so from a literary perspective that makes it very important that you're seeing power relationships in texts and literary texts a lot of post colonial theory is developed from um, a study of colonial discourse so looking at the documents of for example the East India Company and looking at how um, power structures are embedded in those Um, it's also Really concerned with the idea of of memory and remembering and recovering things. So this idea of it will be the experience of lots of people to have learned about Wales, sort of late on in in their education or maybe as adults. Um, yeah. And so this sense that that the histories and the stories, the histories that we're taught and the stories that we're told, are not necessarily the ones about us you like. That's interesting. Um, So that that idea of needing to relearn history or to recover history um, which is central to a lot of post-colonial theory and a lot of post-colonial literature um, seemed relevant to Wales. Um, And the idea of hybridity which again probably was a personal um, thing where the idea that you didn't have to be a sort of it questioned the idea of purity or authenticity and recognised that in the modern world, particularly in colonial scenarios where different cultures have been in contact, um, that what results is hybrid. It, it is a mix and it is all the more kind of exciting in a sense for that. So hybridity allow, it allowed me to exist as the child of a Czech-English of couple in, who'd only ever lived in Wales. It, it sort of it gave me a space.
1: You've gone from being... Neither here nor there, to the hybridity gives you a, as you said, a foothold almost a way of understanding your own position.
2: But it also gave gives Wales a foothold in the sense that you know the Welsh language stopped being a majority by the 20th century, and that doesn't mean to say that the Welsh language isn't central to Welsh identity, even if you, whether or not you speak it. But it stopped Wales being pictured as something that had been in the past but didn't have a viable future it allowed contemporary Wales um, not unproblematically but it gives it allows a space for Wales to sort of to, to be what it is at this point in time I suppose
0: yeah because yeah. you said in your book uh, that the term post-colonialism is misleading isn't it in the sense that it's like you know, it's not a finality
2: yeah so post-colonial is um, a kind of a a catch-all term, if you like. It it can be used literally as post-colonial, something that is after colonialism, Mm. but it actually, as a field and as a theory, covers colonial, -colonial, anti-colonial, post-independence, neo-colonial, and in that sense, we tend to use it as one word to to refer to a field rather than a particular political or, or, or kind of temporal situation.
1: Post-colonialism, as you said, it, it addresses empire, doesn't it? it? Addresses the residue, the fallout, if you want a better word, of empire. And we know we think of imperialism and colonialism as an economic. For those of you who like religiously listen to the podcast and are diligent in the reading that we provide, you will have read Lenin and th- <laughs> and all the other theories and all the, of books it, and all the, the other year. and all the other theories of imperialism. But in like, I guess, the classic Marxist Marxist take on imperialism, imperialism is like a purely economic relationship between two states you know there's the a, a classic example you know, the british state going into india advanced capitalist state going into underdeveloped sort of peripheral countries but post-colonialism developed but you know out of this understanding that, that empire also involves an unequal cultural relationship doesn't it so empire and imperialism is always underpinned by cultural imperialism so i got a good quote from richard jones who says colonialism you know, is isn't just an economic relationship, it entails a complex set of you know, political and constitutional relationships which bind together the political, economic, social and cultural life of the weak nation with the dominant nation. And if you go back to the first wave, which is like Cabral and Fanon and things like that, I guess, is that the 50s, around the 50s or 60s? The 50s and 60s. Um, so these guys were actually involved in liberation struggles, weren't they? In Africa, basically trying to force out the French... Um, it's maybe the, the Algerian
2: War of Independence in Fanon's case.
1: Um but they're dealing with, obviously, the unequal economic relationship, but it's dealing with that the cultural residue of empire, isn't it? And, and, and so, I guess the root of it is, correct me if I'm wrong, Kirsty, I'm going on, but you know, I'm sort of looking at you like, for approval, I yeah, guess. Yeah, Kirsty keeps giving thumbs up. <laughs> You're doing well. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> um, As Dan's writing his <laughs> bike for the first time. <laughs> but, you know, there's this, basically, the economic relationship is underpinned and legitimised by unequal cultural relationships, and that... Typically involves the systematic degradation of the culture of the smaller nation you know by the larger nation. so economic imperialism is underpinned by racism, structural racism, and you, know, this, you know, this idea that the, the culture that is being colonized is inferior and therefore empire is helping to civilize this country and so that legitimates empire in the first instance. but what Fanon and Cabral and things like that start to find out that this had a really long lasting and quite invidious effect on people's, their psyche, isn't it? Like, Fano was a psychiatrist, I believe. Yeah. Maybe it was Cabral, but... So what are what the roots, then, of that cultural... Because you write, obviously, about othering, and what do these, the dominant nations sort of do in the first instance to these smaller nations, and, and how does that manifest itself in culture and literature?
2: You're right to emphasize how important culture is in legitimizing this, but the relationships do begin as economic relationships if you think about the kind of era of mercantilism yeah. in you know sort of Elizabethan exploration and it's only really in the 19th century that the the sort of cultural imperialism that we might recognize today becomes a really oh, right. prominent yeah. factor um, and, and it, it, you can describe it as the, the civilizing mission. You know, this does build on older hierarchies of race and yeah. sense of superiority, but it's really a, a 19th century phenomenon where there is this sort of need to justify what we're doing. Okay. Um, and you get this sort of disingenuous idea of, of civilizing, the idea that, that empire is, is good for people. Which um, in the
1: news a lot recently. Mm. Well, the power of the Shambai built railways, which is great. Which is great.
2: <laughs> yeah, great <with laughs> railways and cricket.
1: Yeah, um, to
0: transport all the players.
1: But it's but, but, but I mean we will go back to what you're saying. But I mean, the, the civilising discourse is still is still there.
2: It is, and and I think more so. Um, I mean, I said earlier that r- before we went on air that, that reading this book now from sort of, what was it seventeen, eighteen years on.
1: Hence, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, it sounds like a long time. What the two things struck me? One was that it was at the time um, clearly being written against a, a sense of, of, of um, well, that, that, that it would be controversial to, to suggest that Wales is post-colonial and there is this sort of writing against uh, writing in that environment. But also the sense that empire was universally. Understood to be a bad thing, and now in 2017-18 that's not a, an assumption you can make anymore. So, I was I was quite shocked by by well, I am shocked by the way that empire is now being going back to this idea of oh well, it was it was it was to the benefit of the colonized nations, and that that nineteenth century idea that it was you know the white man's burden, as Kipling puts it in his poem, that. It's a chore, a duty of the so-called higher races to go out and, you know, civilise, improve, um, impart wisdom, save souls at the same time as blatantly economically exploiting causing mass famines and
0: wasn't that wasn't that the cover though like i always thought you know they're well aware of what they were doing and that was just the way to sell it to um the people who are being exploited you know like the the role of religion would be to kind of first of all teach them sin and then show them that they're sinful, sinful and needed salvation
2: it's hard not to see it as cynical but I think when you break it down, it's much more complex than that. And you do have examples of people who are sincerely going out to evangelize because they believe that that is the salvation of the soul. And, and the Welsh, insofar as they participate, kind of independently in empire, you know, with a, with a Welsh identity attached mm. to it, that was a really important part of their work. And often it was done against the official British yeah. um, sort of imperial... Uh, either military power or, or, or administration. Where that so, you could have different parts of imperialism working against each other.
0: Because you were saying within your book that um, some Welsh people felt that they could improve the empire by being part of it.
2: Absolutely. You know, they would be better at civilizing and better at and, and kinder, perhaps also. Yeah, but not to always. Touch, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there was a there was a strong discourse of um, the Welsh being able to. Um, enrich and improve because of their particular qualities and they, that was very much linked to non-conformity. And Nigel Jen- Jenkins talks about this in um Gwalia and Kasia, his his um, uh, sort of travel book, sort of history book as well looking at particular Welsh colonial outposts and well it's, it's evident in, in various different places that, that the Welsh felt that they were um, somehow, uh, well more religious and more worthy.
1: Mm-hmm. But you, t- you talked about hybridity, education, so How does this cultural... I mean, I think it's really important what you just said about the timeline, of it starts to come in in the 19th century. How does this cultural element or aspect of imperialism manifest itself?
2: I mean, the idea of hybridity is is a post-colonial reading of certain cultural sort of manifestations. And the the colonising mission, if you like, the cultural mission, was to facilitate empire. And there's this sort of paradox there, which is um, encapsulated in in something like um, Babington Macaulay's Minutes on Indian Education, where he talks about educating an Indian elite to be English in tastes, but uh, something like Indian in blood or or colour. And this idea, therefore, that you can... um, illustrate the superiority of Britain through education, including English literature, actually, is very important, Um, and that you can create a colonial elite that will essentially um, have adopted your values, but that they will never become British. There's always the barrier, and in that case, it was a sort of a barrier, a a racially implied barrier. But there is this um, always a, a kind of you can educate somebody so far, but no further. Right. <laughs> uh, you, you
0: were saying as well, wasn't it? That's almost like, with a, like a, a term of Britishness, isn't it? Is you're it? British, but you're not English. Is that you're not just quite there?
2: Yeah. In, in some context, I think in the, in the context of that Indian minute, you weren't even going to get to be British. You were going to be, get to be an Indian elite, but always know your place. Mm. So there is this sort of inherent inferiority already written into that system. But what, post-colonial critics argued and Homi Bhabha in particular was that in that process of education or in the simple process for example of a Hindu reading the Bible there was already something new taking place that the, the, the colonizer couldn't control the knowledge if you like or the education that was being passed on and so that even in mimicking the colonizer that was always a blurred copy and there was always slippage and almost hybridity was a form of resistance built in to the whole project that um, something new and something different that the coloniser wasn't in control of would be the result of that. Um, now, some people have criticised Baba and said, well, that puts too much kind of control around the coloniser. But yeah. actually, when you if you pursue it, the idea of something new coming out of the c- colonial contact is, is, is ultimately what hybridity is about. That the I- and the idea that that might question both cultures, I suppose, um, both the colonised and colonisers' um, views of the world.
1: Well, we're going through, I guess, our conceptual toolbook. You've written about uh, Edward Said and the concept of othering. Explain othering, please, if that's okay. Well...
2: The other is usually means somebody who is different to you, to the I, if you like, hmm. um, and you different in problematic ways. So if you think of the other as part of a binary, I and the other, then I as all the sort of good moral qualities of um, thrift, efficiency, knowledge, and and the other, the colonial other, is usually um, constructed as somehow. Uh, Bad, um, lazy, unreliable, and this. So the colonial other represents all the things that the colonizer doesn't want to be, but it also something kind of. Um, there is something quite attractive about this other. There is some. There is a. There is a fascination about that. That creation. There's something um, also slightly unsettling because you do recognize yourself in the other, um, and so there's always always the. Attempt to push it away, but for fear of, of being associated with it. But also that fascination. Um, so there's an ambivalence in postcolonial terminology about the relationship between colonizer and, and colonial other. But essentially, the other is is the abject, the thing mm. that you sort of want to cast out, and it t- tends to be racialized, um, often sexualized too. Um, but also very static. Yeah. Sort of the other is is um, doesn't change much, and there's not much differentiation. And you find Quite a lot of similarities in different colonial forms of otherness, if you like, um, in, in different regions.
1: Othering is surely one of the most relevant postcolonial theories and, and or terms f- to understand like contemporary imperialism. and for example, the, the way that we talk about the war in the Middle East and people in the Middle East and stuff today it's just you know, as you said, they're almost this homogenous group of people with no internal differences or anything. It's just them basically. Um, As you said, with certain set, certain attributes that or certain qualities are always attributed to them. So, Edward said, I think, was most closely associated with othering and orientalism. But
2: lots of people have because it's not only a post colonial idea, I mean, you have. uh psychoanalytic theory d- d- describes the oh, okay. other as well but um but say talks about uh the oriental other and he described how a sort of a body of knowledge generated in British universities constructed this sense of the of, of an eastern other yeah a, a sort of, um, which was both attractive and uh, and reprehensible.
1: I think that's how people think of us, isn't they yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they,
0: they they see something like familiar but not quite right don't they
1: yeah just attractive but also just awful subhuman like yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but said i mean or said i also i just was said but yeah if now i think about it, he's passing so said isn't it um he obviously talks about i mean he looks at the way the other and orientalism this like the exotic East and other is manifest in literature, isn't it? And Kipling and imperial literature and stuff, isn't it? And
2: but I mean, he writes also about British classics like Jane Austen, or certainly kind of one of the, the central areas of uh, post colonial literary criticism was to reevaluate British classics. Mm. So things like Jane Eyre, for example, has been reread with Bertha Mason being properly recognised as the kind of racial other that she's cast nice. as. Um, and people like Jean Rhys, who've written, um, who wrote a novel imagining Bertha Mason's uh, pre-history in, um, in the Caribbean. So what, what this woman was like before she married Rochester and was taken away and, and shut up in an attic yeah. and only viewed by literary critics as a manifestation of a white woman's um, anger. Yeah, so,
1: and then she burns the house down. Yeah. Is that Jane, is that Jane Eyre? Yeah, she burns. I've only
0: seen their, um Michael Fassbender uh, version of that. All right, and he gets blind in the end, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, spoiler alert.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's Jane Eyre. Yeah, yeah. he
2: goes, he goes blind. He no, goes, no,
1: that was um, X Men First Class. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um,
2: well, Rochester does go blind at the end of Jane Eyre as well.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but but this learning theory—it's so broad and it's amazing. It's an engagement with literature and it. it, it, it it constitute it makes you reread things isn't it it makes I mean I f- I can't remember the the term that Saeed uses for reading but it's it's just a new way of looking at culture isn't it and, and looking at the power relations inherent into writing you know, in writing art well
2: I mean every- the very structures of language yeah. there's some things that you you know you can say in terms of, of specific discourses you know what it's possible to say and what it's possible to refer to and, and how you say it but In post-colonial theory, a lot of that is sort of advanced and developed by by literature, you know, in literary work. So very complex ideas can be played out and complex and and paradoxical ideas can be played out in, in fiction in particular, which then contribute to our understanding for example of, of hybridity or otherness so you know literature isn't something that you just apply theory to it's it's a sort of symbiotic relationship between theory and literature
1: all this you know the cultural imperialism and the way these power relations you know manifest themselves in literature and language and things like that what is the effect this has on the people from the colonized countries
2: Franz Fanon is a really interesting thinker in this context because he identifies an inferiority complex, and he relates that in part to language acquisition. So he says that you become proportionately whiter or more French. And he's talking in a, a, a French um, imperial context. The closer you, you know, the, the better you are at. at, at mastering the French language the more civilized you become um, and so and and if you visit the mother country you were also viewed as, as a, a better more fulfilled person so the person who never leaves um, the colonized country and doesn't necessarily have a good a strong mastery of French um, is lacking something it's not complete but I think that uh, and and um, a writer like Nagugi, the um, Kenyan writer, he describes a process of decolonization of the mind, which implies you know the colonization of the mind the the taking on board the view that the colonizer has of you and and kind of accepting that or i mean accepting implies something too too simple but somehow seeing yourself through the colonizer's eyes even if you're trying to even if you're consciously resisting internalizing
0: it maybe sorry internalizing it
2: internalizing it that's exactly the word Mm. um i mean in in african-american um thinking W. E. B. du bois talks about double consciousness and again that's the same sort of thing about the internalization of inferiority so and and you know, you can consciously reject that, but actually consciously is not enough. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of post-colonial literature is about, is the, the pain, the difficulty, the internal struggles of trying to go beyond that internalized perspective.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, with like uh, Charles Horton Cooley was saying about like you know how you know society puts a mirror up to you, and like as you're saying, if that's what you're getting fed back all mm. the time, is it's really difficult and uncomfortable to uh, form a new identity from beyond that.
2: Yeah, and and even if you recognise that description of yourself in so far as wanting to reject it, you have already Rejected accepted it, it yeah. up to, to a point it, because you've yeah. recognised as about you, and that. Slow process of of the de of decolonization of the mind. I think it's a really helpful phrase um, is Sounds like a new-age
0: uh, treatment, doesn't it?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, all right, so um, Post-colonial theory, I think is amazing because it's not something just applicable to you know We are edging ever closer to talking about whales um, But it's not just something that is stuck in colonial times as it was it's something as you said has been used by African American thinkers to look at the subordinate relationship between Black Americans. In the case of Black Americans, it's just I think the, the, it's still the, in
2: there. The question, though, the key thing is that identity is not something that is simply elective. I mean, I like the fact that Wales is open to the idea of an elective Welsh identity. I think that's great. Um, what was it there? I can't remember who who said it, but you, you know, anyone can be Welsh as long as they're prepared to accept the consequences. But you, you, you are not. Only what you choose to identify as other people are involved, and it is a constant negotiation. And one of those, one of the things that postcolonial theory does is, is helps to focus on that um, interplay between self-identification and the identities that are kind of attributed to you.
1: Okay, deep breath now because we're going to get onto the, the controversial part, I guess. I mean, how does all this apply to Wales and <laughs> Kirsty, and and why did you think of applying it to Wales?
2: So I think part of it is about the themes that come out of the literature. First and foremost, um, you know, if it's not there in the literature, then I wouldn't have applied it. Um, there are themes of loss and exile, the sense of being internally fractured, which comes up again and again in so many different ways. The, uh, and an interest in the re- people's re- relationship with place, which is, again, often about loss or the way that I looked at it. Um there is an interest in language and translation you know this is a, a a nation with two languages um and the relationship between those is is anything but equal um and it doesn't always go in the the direction you might think i mean Welsh language is is you know, has suffered um massive decline over the centuries and and you know active policies against it. but when I started looking at Welsh writing in English, what you find is this an apologetic stance being taken by lots of Welsh writers in English because they're using the wrong language because they don't have, the, you know, they, they don't have Welsh largely. Because I'm thinking about generations of people like um, Gwyn Thomas and Glenn Jones and R.S. Thomas. Now, Gwyn Thomas was quite hostile to yeah. Welsh, but R.S. Thomas talked about Anglophone poetry being a stepping stone back to Welsh. And I also had a problem with this idea of the... You know being so apologetic because what you end up with then is is anglophone literature from Wales being not as good as Welsh language literature and sort of having no place in yes. English you know England's literature and and so I wanted to make a space for anglophone Welsh writing in its own right um, so that that relationship between the two languages um, which is interesting and the fact that English in Wales is not The English of England it is very much informed by its relationship with Welsh, either several generations down, you know, the dialects maybe of of different regions of Wales, but also the way that so many writers actually do have access to both languages and changed English in amazing ways because of their knowledge of Welsh. So in that sense, you know, Welsh writing in English is um, structurally, in in form and in language, of a postcolonial literature. So sort of different elements of the literature drew me towards postcolonial paradigms. But the other thing I wanted to do with this was to show how the Welsh situation might challenge the odd post-colonial assumption. And it does, when you start looking at the, the theory that you want to apply to Wales, you want to think, hang on, this doesn't work. Suddenly we're talking about things that are regarded as foreign, but they're not foreign in Wales, you know, or there's an assumption that all... White Europeans, are kind of, it's a homogenous category in lots of postcolonial um, writing. So there was, you know, there was a, a sort of an interest in writing from Wales, from Welsh experience out, uh, intervening in postcolonial ideas in that way. Um, I've forgotten what your question was. No, there, so. no but
1: um, you've answered it perfectly. But what I was going to ask, and I think we talked about it briefly off air, was at the time. As we know, there's a bit of controversy because the idea of Wales being thought of as a, a country that where you know post-colonial theory might apply, some people were hostile to that idea. Why would you say that that was?
2: Well, the, I, I, it was very easy to explain why people in post-colonial theory in the field of post-colonial theory might be hostile to Wales being considered postcolonial, and that was one angle of it one aspect of it and that was because Wales had been complicit in empire and also if it had been colonized it was far too long ago for it to be relevant and neither of those um, arguments are particularly persuasive um, Wales has you know it's possible to be imperial and anti-imperial at the same time, it's possible to, um, you know, be a victim of colonisation and still to participate. On, and so, I, I mean, that that wasn't really relevant. And the idea that Wales was colonised a long time ago, it does complicate this kind of a, sort of a simple linear narrative. But that's not really important for applying post-colonial theory to Wales or to understanding Wales now, certainly from the 19th century onwards in terms of imperialism because you could see the same ideas that were circulating in empire circulating and affecting Wales. So um, that was my, my aim really was to show how they were, Wales both participated in imperial discourses from the point of view of a coloniser but was also constructed itself in terms of the colonised um, by, by the same discourses. The controversy in <laughs> Wales well, look, I, I I'm not sure I, I fully understand it. I mean, Chris Williams writes a really interesting essay against viewing Wales in post-colonial terms in um, in his the book that he co-edited with Jane Aron, which was in most other senses very much a kind of a politically kind of engaged book about post-colonial Wales. So Chris's essay is, is 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 an anomaly in that. Um, I think arguments that uh, rest on a sort of a Going to say purely historical basis seem to me to miss the point. I am um, not particularly interested in or necessarily qualified to discuss Wales's history and economics, but it, it seems to me that the idea of a linear process where you you're colonised um, and you fight for independence and you become independent belies all sorts of much more complex things that are going on. Um, for example, neo-colonialism. You don't know, just just get rid of. Uh, you know, your, your imperial, the imperial power dynamics just because you've become uh, an independent country for a start. And it just seemed to fly in the face of the fact that Wales clearly in its linguistic and some other cultural elements views itself in, um, as a colony, not by everyone certainly, but by, you know, lots of writers do did. Dye Di Smith was obviously a very vocal um, Critic of the idea of a postcolonial model, um, he was attacking Stephen Knight's book in particular. So that's a very different set of postcolonial ideas. It's, it's a really interesting and very good book. Um, but it seemed to rest on the idea that class was the way that we should be interpreting the inequalities within um, Britain if you like, and that, that post-colonialism was, was a, a kind of, a, I don't know, a red herring. No, Those weren't his words. Um, I D- Dye Smith this. now is saying this. Sorry?
0: Was Dye Smith saying this or Stephen Knight?
2: Di Smith was 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 rejecting Stephen Knight's post-colonial um, models on the mm. basis of what seemed to be a preference for class as the primary model. And I don't think class covers it all. I think class is hugely important, and it's an area that has been neglected. It's coming back into... Um, Sort of academic sites, if you like, and especially in literature. But, but yeah, it rejected it. But, not, but since then, Dyson Smith has come out with the most post-colonial arguments going. You know, around the creation of the National Theatre, for example, and the the publishing model um, in which you know Wales hasn't had enough um, representation. So, I'm, I'm, I think
1: he's 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 seen the light. Well, I mean, I shan't go into. I shan't continue my ongoing beef that I've got in my head with Dye Smith, but mm. um, it'll suffice to it say, like Graham, Day, well, Graham, Graham Day is probably, the, I'd say, the greatest living Welsh sociologist and happens to be my former PhD supervisor. But but it's really interesting because there was a really nuanced debate going on at the time between people like Neil Evans, Graham Day, you know, Gareth Rees, and they were dealing with Michael Hector's book, Internal Colonialism, and the really complicated relationship between Wales and the British state and I'll go into that in a minute, but Graham Day basically says he he criticises Welsh historians for being, I quote, content to sneer and dismiss it in passing comments without engaging with any of the substantive points. And I hesitate to use these words, but it, honestly, when you read some of these critiques by Chris Williams and Di Smith, I honestly sometimes think that I don't think they've read internal colonialism, and I don't think they've read post-colonial theory, because it's like, it's almost... I don't know, I just get the impression of gatekeeping. It's like, this is our field. How dare you come into it with these fancy theories? Like, Emmanuel Wallerstein's, like, world systems theory is, like, an amazing attempt to make sense of, you know, the interrelationship between the, the world economies. Sociologists thought it was brilliant. You know, political economists think it's brilliant, thought it was brilliant. Historians had a problem with it because, like, actually it wasn't that simple. But it's like, all right, but we're using it as a heuristic. We're not saying it's completely, you know, accurate in every country, we're just saying in broad terms this relationship between the, this block and this block is unequal and and it just almost seems as if they just completely missed the point at the time um, and you've got a really a brilliant quote I think in the book and you said Wales constitutes a uniquely liminal territory and it's sort of an interesting midway between coloniser and colonised and you say that's why in many ways Wales is perfect as a research site as a way to use post-colonial theory because it's not black and white because it's not so obviously um a colony and it's not it's at the same time it's clearly not part of the metropolis so that's why it's almost even more important that post-colonial theory is used in Wales but i'm going to just briefly go back to i guess the where the controversy comes from why people have this problem with understanding Wales as a a colony because because i think the criticism is if Wales was never a colony then how can you use postcolonial theory which as you said it's just Disingenuous that, in the extreme because it misses the point, almost like in a crazy sense as well. Just thinking of that what? meme with the uh, the dude tapping his head, you know. But yeah, it is. It's like, oh, can't can't use post-colonial theory if, if you're we're
0: not a if we're not a colony. But they're
1: literally using. So so Michael Hector said, you know, in nineteen seventy five or nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, I mean, he wrote the in book, the seventies. He wrote internal colonialism. It was a sociological work, and he basically says that you know, it's quite simplistic. England had created colonies in Wales, Scotland, and Ireland, and had exploited Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. And moreover, that England had sort of justified this by using legitimating racist discourse, which held that Celtic nations were basically inferior. And so he basically... He was one of the first to use the language of colonialism to explore the relationship, the theory of the internal colony, in non-saltwater places. So, you know within mainstream states in western europe so he's looking in the uk and at the time that seemed outlandish but it it had been used in south america it just had a really hostile reception in wales for numerous reasons so basically historians dealt with hector's thing and they said well this is actually quite simplistic you know they said like he conflate the experience of wales scotland and ireland and so they said well actually ireland was far more of a colony than wales was but you know, Scotland was far less of a colony than Wales was, that's what Neil Evans said. And what Graham Day says is basically he says, well Hector's model of Wales being an internal colony of the British state is far too simple because he says that the British state wasn't inherently exploitative, it wasn't just extracting raw materials, because it was basically far smarter, and that's why that's how I came across like the I guess the Gramscian analysis of the British state. And the idea of hegemony, so what Graham Day says, he says Hector is right in so far that there was a deeply unequal and is a deeply unequal relationship between England and wales, and it 's almost ridiculous to deny that, but he said that Hector's wrong in the sense that the British state was basically cleverer, the British state was far more nuanced than Hector made out, and you know and the welfare state is probably the greatest example of that. And also people have given examples like, you know, the British state was actually far kinder to minority languages and hector made out and things like that. But I guess the point is, these debates about, you know, is Wales a colony or isn't it, it focused on the economic. Uh, And what Neil Evans and I think Graham Day said, they they basically conclude that Wales was a colony in a classic sense, you know, before the 1536 Act of Unions. They said before that, you know, there was a racist attitude towards the Welsh language, you know, there was Wales was colonised and used for its natural resources. There was plantations, you know, uh, the Welsh lived outside like the town walls and things like that, and then the English were in the towns. So it's, that's a classic colonial situation. But then they say, well, Wales then moved from being a colony, an internal colony, to being basically part of the English state. So it wasn't, you know, so Hector was wrong, basically. But what you said then, Kirsty, I mean, so that economic relationship is used then to sort of delegitimize the use of post theory, isn't it? Because they say, well, if it wasn't a colony, but why is it so good? How you know, could, if, yeah. if it wasn't a colony, how could you use um, post-colonial, you know, you can't use postcolonial theory. And Richman Jones says that this is like, he said this is a hysterical overreaction. And one of the reasons, let's be clear, is that Hector and inter- in internal colonialism, it kind of problematizes Britishness, because Hector kind of basically implied that Britishness was a form of false consciousness in Wales and he calls into question the legitimacy of the British state um, because, you know, if the British state started off, you know, if Wales is a colony and is, continues to be a colony and exploited, then naturally the British state is no longer sort of legitimate. And for people like Dai Smith and, dare I say, Chris Williams, the British state, in their sort of labourist worldview, is the greatest thing of all time because they view the British state in this quite narrow terms as a social democratic experiment. I won't go there, but Because internal colonialism and the idea of post-colonial theory potentially undermined Britishness um, and the British state, that's why I think there was this massive overreaction, like, ah, this is irrelevant. But what I'm saying is that the original debate was about an economic relationship, you know, Wales and England. And just because Wales wasn't a classic colony in the same sense as like India was or even Ireland was, it doesn't mean that post-colonial theory isn't applicable. Well, that's my take on it anyway.
2: Ireland was rejected as a as a model of postcolonialism because um, it was regarded as you know too close to Europe, part of Europe, white in that binary. But now, I mean, it's it's been been accepted um, for quite a long time. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's always there as an example in in kind of more recent postcolonial writing. I mean, to go back what you were, to what you were saying about historians, I mean, there are examples of historians who do see Wales in colonial contexts. I mean, there's the R.R. R. Davis, who talks about that early, that medieval period is when Wales is a, a proper colony, if you like. Yeah. But, you know, Gwyneth Williams is when mm. was Wales. Yeah. I mean, that's a very long description of a, of a colonial and post-colonial um, nation. I, to be honest, prefer to sidestep all of this because I'm not sure that it helps to say Wales is a colony because what do we mean by that? A colony, which colony? Yeah. You know, Zimbabwe, <laughs> South Africa, Caribbean, you know, I mean... Wh- A colony is just a a very loose concept. Um, Imperialism, I think, is much more important and insidious and harder to pin down. And I think there is definitely an imperial relationship between um, England and Wales. And that manifests itself differently at different times to greater or lesser extents. So so actually trying to, to pin a label on Wales has never been part of what I was trying to do. And because it's about literature perhaps, also, I can sidestep that to look at the ways in which there are parallels, discernible parallels there. And that's what's interesting, is actually looking at more detailed cases, you know, and even in the economic case, you can look at kind of detailed examples. Um, But to say Wales is a colony also risks undermining the detail and the the kind of and the extent of the atrocity Hmm. of the British Empire overseas. And possibly including Ireland. If you look at the famine, what was you know the famine in Ireland and the famine in India were happening sort of roughly the same time. So there are there are reasons to say that there are comparable elements, rather than to simply just say Wales was a colony or Wales is unpro- unproblematically post-colonial. And I am slightly uncomfortable where I hear people just state those facts or yeah. that you know or that Welsh writing in English in my field is a post-colonial literature well not all of it and mm. not all the time and, in, and and anyway, what do you mean by that so I think you know the more we look at specific examples and we look at the detail and we actually try to push against those terms of colonial and post-colonial and problematize them then we actually get to something that's a little bit richer and more useful that's not to say that i don't agree with you. That defence of, you know, no, it's not a colony or no, we're not using post colonialism is, I think, over the top. And it is defensive and, it, uh, um, and, and as I've already said, not right. <laughs> but, but I do think we need to be nuanced and otherwise I think we risk applying fairly meaningless terms.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 for its worth, I actually agree that I don't think, the world, I don't think Wales was a colony and, and back in the 70s especially welsh nationalists took on this idea that wales was a colony took it at face value and they're like well this explains everything you know um and it's really and as you said it's not a nuanced explanation of wales is complicated and it's quite sophisticated nature of the british state mm. it's like everything's quite black and white and that's why you get i think it's Gwynvore evans said oh you know wales is england's f- first colony yeah, and britishness yeah. is like a, like a sham basically it's imposed on england and but uh, imposed on. I kind say, of agree with that. He says, you know, Britishness is imposed on Wales or something along those lines. But obviously, that's rubbish because, you know, Welsh people. Cho- you write in your book as you Welsh people chose to be British as well. Is there's, um, there's a cho- element of choice in there?
2: Yes, although what, what what choice means in that context, I mean, I think that's the issue around assimilation and um, acculturation. The the idea that the, there is a there could be a definite advantage, particularly when the penal laws were still in place. For being English, so how much is that a choice? If you if you choose to become anglicised, or you choose to become English, if you can. Um, and the 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 issue with Wales and the comp- one of the interesting complicating factors of Wales is the proximity to England and the fact that you could effectively pass as English without much trouble. But then, what what are the implications of that for Wales? What are the implications of that for the culture, for the language, um, and for your own identity? Um, which you know, it's a, a, again a theme that crops up a lot in anglophone literature.
1: I'm thinking about reading some of your book back to you now. As mm-hmm. a, it's uh, like <laughs> a
0: court case, isn't it? You said, <laughs> in
1: 2004, you wrote this, um, but <laughs> let's say that postcolonial theory does, app- which, which we think it does, apply to Wales. You 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 take these concepts of self alienation, hybridity, ambivalence. And like inferiority complex, and and if if I may, I'm going to read an excerpt. I mean, you you say right from a Welsh perspective, Ned Thomas has described some Welsh people as having quote an ambivalence in the personality. He suggests that Welshmen are often fighting something in themselves. Since deference to the English language and to English people in Wales has for centuries been inseparable from deference to the higher class, there is some plausibility in the theory that Welshmen do not grow up with full confidence in their identity as Welshmen but to different degrees awaken to it. And that process of gaining confidence, straightening the back and holding the head up high is a painful one. And that meets with some internal resistance as with the awakening of a suppressed class or group anywhere. And then Raymond Williams also discusses a Welsh sense of inferiority in his essay Welsh Culture, where he interprets what might sometimes be mistaken for pride and confidence as a defensive exuberance. Who has not heard of the fluent Quicksilver Celt making rings around the dumb English? The energy of the talk is indeed not in doubt, but we have to listen more carefully to what it's really saying. It's often a lively exuberance. It is just as often an unmitigated flow to prevent other things being said. And what those other things are, we hear more often amongst ourselves. An extraordinary sadness, which is indeed not surprising, and at the edges. An implacable bitterness, even a soured cynicism, which can jerk into life. This is what makes it hard to hear as a fantastic comic edge or a wild self-deprecation. As a form of pride, a wall of words, anyway, so that we do not have to look steadily and soberly as what's ha- at, at what has happened to us, um, which is quite bleak, actually, from old Raymond. Mm. Um, old man Raymond. But it's a really interesting uh, point to make. I mean, so how prevalent would you say this ambivalence and, and self hatred, or whatever is, in Welsh literature? And how how much do you agree with what Raymond Williams and Ned Thomas were saying?
2: Uh. Well, I agreed with them enough to include them <laughs> to,
1: to write a, a book about it.
2: <laughs> yeah. So it's easier sometimes to have other people say those things for you because I think I would be quite uncomfortable about sitting here and saying that that the Welsh, yeah. such a you know, representative person who exists, um, feel a sense of inferiority. But across the literature, um, there is that when I mean, there are examples of people writing about. Characters, for example, who are who are struggling with a sense of of at least divided allegiances. I, it's actually quite hard to think of a quote off the top of my head that that kind of encapsulates that. But I mean, R. S. Thomas's poetry to go back to that kind of early influence of his writing. He paints the Welsh as a people who are always in retreat. Was one of his lines that there is this sense of. failure or the inevitability of defeat you know so he's writing that sort of sense of, of some sort of almost an attractive inferiority there's something quite romantic about that sense of of failing
0: that's that's how we get through our lives isn't it we're just
1: romanticized i need to we're... use those li- i need to find that aris thomas quote and just like use it yeah. <laughs> all the time this is why i feel yeah
0: just kind of repeat it to yourself in the mirror yeah <laughs>
2: Or, but then, I mean, when I was looking at that um, Raymond Williams quote, and you think about somebody like Gwyn Thomas, that kind of angry exuberance that is both making a very strong class point, but that is also, you know, it is, it is a very Welsh voice that comes through. Um, and, they, 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 you know, using that sort of black humour to describe um, the situation and the values at that time. I don't know. Um, yes, I do think that there is there is a... a a sense of inferiority that is perhaps about resignation it's easier to find it kind of actually outside literature at the moment i'm kind of thinking about um, parents who you know even when i was a youngest child in the early 80s thinking about you know saying that they wanted their children to learn english because it was the only way to succeed and that's you know that's they wouldn't necessarily have understood that to be an inferiority complex it was more uh, maybe a, a a rational um, statement about wanting to give their children lots of opportunities, but you do surely inevitably internalise that sense that your own language is not good enough for, you know, existing in the rest of the world. So, and when you're not seeing your stories reflected back at you, then you, pre- you sort of internalise that sense that you're not important enough. So when I used to teach, um, I taught for a little while in the, um, what was then University of Glamorgan, um, I would often teach mature students, people who'd grown up in the local area. And when you taught Welsh writing, especially kind of um, sort of industrial literature, but, but any of it, in fact, and there was this kind of real sense of surprise they're writing you know that that there was that Wales was being depicted in literature and that the literature was so good and that their stories were out there but they had never been told um and it you know if you're not taught that in school you assume that there is no literature worth teaching and so now for example that there is a small amount of um, Welsh writing in English which is compulsory at GCSE level um not that the literature GCSE is now compulsory so <laughs> that's a problem in itself but i was talking to some uh, secondary school teachers and one of the things that that was said was no the kids are not necessarily they're not really being told this is welsh writing all the time they're not really looking at the welsh cultural content but what they do know is that these writers are from wales and that they're good enough to be on the curriculum and just that sort of connection you know, breeds a sense of self-esteem in the the nation's literature. I'm not saying that's going to overturn the economic inequalities, but these are important cultural steps just showing that, you know, you are legitimate, you've got the institutions that can promote and teach you about your own past through your own um, literature. Uh, And and that's what's missing in the 20th century, and that's what writers come back to talking about, um, the fact that, you know, you could have been growing up anywhere because your education was effectively designed from outside or um, that you no longer had access to the language that your parents had because they hadn't taught you because um, there was a disadvantage to speaking Welsh, never mind being bilingual, but it would actually be better not to speak Welsh at all because of its association with uh, an inferior status.
1: But in thinking about Wales as a a colony or post-colonial country... Where does devolution fit into that and, and does it change anything?
2: In cultural terms, devolution made, has made a big impact, partly um, because you can do a lot with not very much money, partly because um, culture was kind of a brief that the Assembly had right from the beginning and um, wanted to do something with. So, uh, you know, the establishment of something like the Library of Wales with the marketing budget that it had behind it. It, it has made a difference in the sense that people are aware of the brand, even if they haven't read it, any of the of the text. There is this the idea that there are classics in the English language, um, but there was also more money put into. Publishing and, and having an indigenous publishing industry in Wales is crucial and that didn't really exist until well, actually the 1980s I said 1960s in the book, but that was really when the Arts Council for Wales came in It's not until the 80s that Seren books are publishing, you know, a kind of a systematic uh, a, an important um, a, an important list from the beginning um, so and the other thing I think that devolution, the other impact that devolution had was in the academic field where Welsh writing in English hasn't been a particularly prestigious area. I was told, you know, you can't, you can't do Welsh writing in English and expect to have a career on, on that alone. But what happened with devolution was around 99, 2000, all of those kind of um, handbooks to, or a companion to different types of literature, you start seeing Welsh writing having a place In there and because there is the because there is a political identity you know Wales is now officially a devolved nation I think that had an impact on the wider um, field of English literature and people felt if they didn't think Welsh writing was great that doesn't matter they felt obliged to acknowledge that it was um, an entity in its own right so the the political situation had an impact on the academic one
0: Uh, Kirsty within your book uh, at one point you um draw the issue that uh, Wales being represented uh, or personified in a, a female form and then you make the point saying that that kind of gives the connotations that Wales needs to be protected perhaps by like England or the British state. I was just wondering like how you would kind of um, see intersectionality working with within uh, post-colonialism.
2: I think it's quite important to be aware of kind of the gender experiences of colonialism and post-colonialism and that's one of the things that post-colonial feminism has done has tried to show how uh, the woman question if you put it in Victorian terms (laughs) plays out in anti-colonial independence movements for example there's often this tendency to say well we need to have um, we need independence first and we'll deal with women second and in fact Helen Mary Jones talks about this in a Welsh context you know the, the nationalism um, should be about all of the people, not just you know, the country, which is sort of essentially uh, regarded as, as men and then women coming second. Um, and in fact, in Wales, in the late 19th century, women were a part, or, or women's rights were seen as an important part of the nationalist movement, the anti-colonial movement, if you if you like. Um, Wales is figured often as a woman, but so were lots of countries. There is a sort of default. Female mm. form, um, you know, allegorical form for for nation, but in the sort of colonial or in the imperial relationship between England and other countries, England is often seen as um, uh, paternal. So the the colonized countries, Scotland, for example, Wales, um, in literature, are often presented as as peasant women for to to marry into marry the uh, usually a soldier or a general mm. or somebody of higher st- class status and a man. So the marriage narrative, if you like, is is a way of talking about the uh, relationships between the countries and and promoting union. But there's also this idea of Wales and Celtic countries as wild and overly emotional and poetic, if you would put it more positively. All these kind of feminine attributes. So it's hard to talk about race or nationality or even inferiority and... Or class or economics without being aware of all the intersectional sort of differences. What does it mean to be, um, you know, a Welsh woman rather than a Welsh man, for example, just putting it in really basic terms? Hmm. Um, the narratives of sexual conquest, for example, which are colonial narratives, you know, you you, you come in and you, you kind of in negative terms, you know, the rape of the fair country, putting in oh, sure. uh, Alexander Cordell's book. Um, Classic. <laughs> the idea. All of the, that language is sexualized. It is gendered. So, um, you know, trying to explore those dimensions of the way the way the Welsh are represented as kind of uh, libidinous and also therefore aligned with um, Africans because mm. of the sort of the idea of sexual kind of excess. There are all these sorts of interesting parallels that you can start teasing out of the literature, which is one of the things I try and do.
0: Like within the blue books, you were saying that you know uh, women are often you know seen as just. I was going to say, really wild and, you know, couldn't be...
2: Yeah, unfit mothers yeah, and, yeah. and, and not, not not proper moral guardians. And that becomes, you know, an issue right through the 19th century and into the 20th of the Welsh then, making sure that its women uh, are are above reproach. Mm.
0: Keep me in line, Wales. That's uh, <laughs> England's view, isn't it?
1: All right, we're going to go back to post-evolution Wales, I guess. I mean, you, you wrote at the end of the book, Kirsty, um, and again, I'm going to read it back to you, you talk about hybridity and I guess contemporary Wales um, and you, you say the notion of hybridity attempts to transcend the narrow exclusive and often bitterly entrenched essentialist definitions of Welshness held by some as well as the sometimes aggressively anti Welsh attitudes of the British Welsh um, I don't know if that, I mean how does how do you see that relate I mean because if you think if we think back to devolution and devolution is meant sort of um, catalyse almost like a new way, new inclusive ways of being Welsh, really, if you think back it was like, oh, everyone can be Welsh mm. and things like that. I guess, how do you see now, how would you characterise post-evolution Wales in terms of attitudes, identities, and...
2: Well if you look at the literature, then it, it was a flowering of, of, of a kind of a period of all sorts of different identities being claimed as Welsh, queer Welsh identities, um, black Welsh identities, and... and um, yeah it, it was a time of embracing all sorts of uh, different um contrary ideas of Welshness um fluidity as well a kind of an ability to um to 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 say diff- yeah to to move beyond i suppose the stereotypes of of Welshness um but I mean now I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm still reeling from Brexit so I'm, I'm having to completely reconstruct what I thought Wales was um, and perhaps it's more fractured now. Um, I mean Simon Brooks talks about the a different type of kind of internal colony now that you know the assembly is almost sort of creating a new dynamic in Wales whereby other parts of kind of peripheral Wales Welsh-speaking Wales are being neglected and I think though you know they're I'm very interested in his work. I think there is something to be said there. Um, In terms of identity, I mean, hybridity is very convenient. I did use it strategically there. I I was possibly overly optimistic. I was trying to find a way of liberating um, some discourses from that kind of idea of what's proper Welsh, Mm. you know, when it comes down to it, you know, um, because it seemed to be built on exclusivity. And in the end I think the most helpful idea um comes from Charlotte Williams who uh published Sugar and Slate an incredibly important book in 2002 so if you like the flowering of devolution you know that kind of um uh, sort of uh, a multicultural and more uh, self-aware Wales and she is very critical of static ideas of home which are all about building boundaries you know we belong and you don't um and they she talks about them these, this sort of static idea of home being based on, on kind of yeah, stasis, um, nostalgia, roots, the past, and she posits a model of identification. So rather than identity, which sounds like something static mm. and permanent, she talks about identification as a continual process of belonging. So you are constantly rewriting yourself, constantly rewriting the nation in that sense, it's an active process. It's not a static form of being, and she, within that, allows um, identification with multiple points. So home isn't one place. It can be a constant toing and froing between multiple points of identification. So in her case, Guyana, um, parts of her childhood in Africa, Wales. I mean, she lives in Australia now. I don't know how, but but that idea of identity being you being um replaced by identification as a process i thought you know maybe that's a version of hybridity that we could still see um as very contemporary current and perhaps wales can is you know
1: well when i, I mean i i think that is i mean you conclude in chapters is fantastic and as you said it is optimistic in a sense I mean, how many years since? And, and, and now, obviously, this isn't a, a literary, these aren't literary representations. But I think about how Wales is portrayed now, and it's um, you know we've got MTV's The Valleys, we've got Gavin and Stacey, we've got Stella, we've still got almost these quite clunky stereotypes of Wales being the dominant, rep- and and as we all know, identity is was it um, Tim Hades or say it's re These these images of Wales. That are now on the, people are seeing themselves represented in like British channels and things like that, and in, in in TV. But lo and behold, it's quite clunky stereotypes of of Welsh and w- Welsh people. Um, so that's TV. To what extent has contemporary Welsh literature, like I guess, moved moved on beyond these?
2: You know, it's much more sophisticated. <laughs> it's much more exciting. I don't know if it's. Qu- I, I'm. I've. I think what we've learned over the last few years is that narrative of, of progress of cultural political progress is, is, is is not. It's not going the way we thought it might. Um, I think what's exciting is that Welsh writers are probably more aware of their own literary heritage through projects like the Library of Wales, um, and they are. Engaging in kind of witty and sophisticated ways, and they're not—they're not, they're not um, narrowly kind of well. They never have been restricted to only talking about Wales, but they're doing it in in inventive ways that link that, that, that are outward looking. I mean, thinking something like Alice Conran's pigeon, which she sees a Welsh language experience of, of a boy being. Exiled from his language in a, in a young offenders institute and the comparison is with an Urdu speaking boy Who's also there and, and neither of them can quite articulate their own selves until they learn English as a weapon In mm-hmm. fact, you've got kind of weaponized perfect English. So there's still a lot of interest in the same themes um, but Well doing it in in constantly kind of inventive and, and witty um, and and textually really interesting ways
1: Great, thank you very much, Kirsty. Um, as is custom, uh, would you like to give a shout out to anyone, or would you like to alternatively start an argument with anyone via <laughs> the medium of our podcast? Or would you like?
2: If you'd given me warning of that, I might have thought of somebody, <laughs> but no, not under their context. Sorry, but Simon, thank you very much for your time. No yeah.
1: problem. Thanks very shout much. Shout out to us. All right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks so much, Kirsty. Brilliant from Kirsty. Okay, on it's on to the desolation mailbox. Nathan, have you got anything?
0: Uh, we do. We have uh, got a few emails this week, which is good. So, um, if anyone's interested, contact us apart from on Facebook or Twitter. Um, so we've got our own email address, which is desolationwales@gmail.com.
1: So you know, send us some
0: love. Yeah, but you
1: know, if you want to pitch episodes, if you want to pitch like people, as I said, more more in depth pitches about things you want to see or how you envision them going, or let's talk about I mean. We are experts at most things, but there are some things that we might need uh, pointers in in terms of reading material or people to get on, things like that. So you can email us.
0: And it doesn't have to be uh, strictly to the politics. You know, if you want us to review a film or give you some relationship advice, we're you know, we're here for you. Yeah. Okay. So um, one email we've received from James Proctor. He says, hello, lovelies. Please one photo of Nathan in an I Love Books t-shirt. Thank you in advance. So, James, we've sorted that out for you, and uh, I've sent you some cheesecake pics in the,
1: in the post. That's pretty nice. Some tasteful Polaroids that I hope you enjoy. And we've also got, wow, I didn't ex- expect to have so much the amazing positive feedback we've got on the Rob this episode. Yeah, um, makes it worthwhile for a us. A lot. <laughs> some hate mail sort of basically su- suggesting that. Luckily, I mean, I've got that flagged, so it just went straight in spam. Uh, yeah, but the hate mail suggests that um, Nathan and I are communists, which, you know, we are, so. <laughs> um, but, you know, also, it's clear that you all want far more communism and, you know, anarchism. That's the that's the, what I'm getting from these emails anyway. Yeah, that's, um, I and read also, the subtext. And yeah. also more, more lexit.
0: Yeah. So next episode will be Lexit, and we An are in that. early talks about Rob Griffiths joining us fully, <laughs> and perhaps even replacing us at some point.
1: I hope so. Yeah. It's just Rob. So, and, and we're not going to be called Destination Radio anymore. Could we go Rob Griffiths Radio? Well, just Communist Party Radio. Isn't it? Yeah. Communist Party of Britain Radio. <laughs> yeah. Because Britain's amazing. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, Gary. Uh, okay, so. Um, it's time for some shout-outs, and I would like to shout-out to my boy Simon for sorting me out with some uh, work over Christmas and New Year. That was pretty nice. Shout-out to Hooper for letting us use his lovely studio again. Yeah,
0: he's an absolute hero. as boy.
1: Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, I'm done.
0: Okay, he is done. So um, shout-outs to our new patrons. So we do have a patron, so if you'd like to help us um, you know, cover recording costs, traveling costs. You
1: know, cause Basically, if you want to support the only... Like, literally the one only and clearly the best Welsh news and politics outlet. The only, well, the only one the best is the only one. Best by default. Yeah. Hmm. Which but, is the, you'd think it wouldn't be as satisfying, but it is. It is, it's, it's great, like winning, isn't it? winning something by like, the only entry. Yeah,
0: it's, it's amazing. So, yeah, you can send us money on Patreon. So, if you just Google Patreon, um, Desolation Wales... Or desolation radio. Google that one. said. Google both and give both <laughs> uh, money. And also, is this linked in our Twitter. So recently, um, some very kind people: Gawin Stone, Calvin Jones, and Gareth Jones. I'm not sure if you're related to Calvin. Uh, you've uh, all donated, which we're really grateful Thank for. Thank you, everyone. And uh, my shout-outs are going to Oliver, um, our graphic designer, hmm. who uh, we pay a hefty wage. Uh, Polly, who is going to help us co-host in the future, near future, so big shout out to her, and a very special shout out to Michael Keaton, who after last um, last weekend I watched, I think it was four films in the space of two days. You did. You had a bit of a <laughs> three of a which, sesh. yeah, three of which starred Michael Keaton, which were Spotlight, which is incredible, that's on Netflix. Yeah, The Founder on Amazon Prime, which is really good, mm. and the new Spider Man which I got bootlegged from Dan, which was, uh, I I think, good. The quality was really low. And Dan had also digitally replaced (laughs) himself with, um, you know, replaced Tom Holland with himself. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a good six out
1: of ten there. Thanks, man. It's okay. Cool. And that's it. So um, thank you all for listening, guys. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye, comrades. Bye. I would also like to make a toast. To the white man, who steals our land and steals our sons. To the
2: white man!